Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Leo Rios about his story, Lencho, which appears in the most recent issue of The Common in a portfolio of writing from the immigrant farmworker community. Originally from the central Valley of California, Leo Rios studied English at UCLA and received an MFA from Cornell University. His first published story was selected by ZZ Packer as winner of the Arkansas International's Emerging Writers Prize. His second published story appeared in the Georgia Review and was noted as a distinguished story in the Best American Short Stories 2022. Other publications include Stories in the Rumpus, The Master's Review, and Joyland Magazine. A recent recipient of a McDowell Fellowship, he currently lives in Tucson, Arizona, where he teaches writing at the University of Arizona. Leo Rios, thanks for joining us. Hi, Emily. Thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe where you're calling from now. Sure thing. I am here in Tucson, Arizona, where it is sunny, though it rained all night. I bet it's a little warmer than where I am. I think we're probably at 20 degrees right now. (laughs) It is. I feel very lucky every day. uh, The cold is somewhat of a nuisance in the morning, but then it kind of goes away. And then it's like, yes, this is awesome. That sounds good. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure thing. Um, Here is the beginning of um, the story, um, Lencho. Good vibes started at Movida, my favorite bicycle club in Bakersfield, because it was real. Other clubs were only restaurants during the day or warehouses on the fairgrounds. Movida was a big-time deal, built especially for visiting artists who came from everywhere, L.A., Mexico, sometimes Central or South America. It was the dance spot you took your girl to. If you wanted to be among the best dressed, the most beautiful. All week, the radio stations announced the club's Valentine's Day promotions. For that Friday, they'd booked Viento de Oro, a banda that had recently toured with John Sebastian. His name alone was enough to convince us that the whole thing was urgent. Didn't matter that the fool himself wouldn't be there. In the rural towns of North Kern County where we lived, Tickets were sold at La Canasta Meat Market in Wasco, Tres Hermanos CD Store in McFarland, 
and the State Farm Insurance Office in Delano. I bought ours at La Canasta. The night of the dance, my friend Lencho drove us the 30 miles from Wasco to Bakersfield. It was me, him, plus two girls, Liz and Sam. They were juniors, a year younger. I had never actually talked to them before. In the car Lencho had stolen from his sister, we all swallowed vodka flavored like syrup. Walking slow in the parking lot afterward, Liz and I linked arms and huddled. Her curly hair brushed against my shoulder, and she felt so, so soft against my bicep. I wanted to have a dance with her right then and there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who, who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Sure. So it's basically about um, a group of teenagers, uh, high schoolers who go to a dance in Bakersfield and they travel from their small town called Wasco um, to the city of Bakersfield, which is in the Central Valley of California, about an hour and a half to two hours north of L.A. Um, And at the club, they dance, they drink, they dance, they party, they have fun. And then afterward, on their way back to their hometown, they have to drive through a, you know, um, a long patch of road where there are almond orchards and Lencho ends up taking them into an almond orchard where there's an abandoned house and sort of the scene uh, turns uh, shadowy and um, what happens at the house um, is a little, you know, uh, different than than what um, the beginning of the story was, you know, was about. So in a way, the narrator um, is sort of um, thrust into a situation that he didn't expect um, with uh, Lencho and um, the two um, other girls who they're who they're with. So I don't want to spoil it too much. Long story short, they go to a party and then there's an after party. Yes, an unexpected after party. Um, that's great. Well, what inspired you to start work on this piece? Like, how did that first draft come together? I know from talking to you that it was quite a long time ago. Yeah, and you know what? I I haven't ever told anybody this, but I, I'm happy to to share that. Um, last year, almost exactly a year ago, um, a story called Now or Never was published in the Master's Review. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of that story, there's a guy in L.A. who's locked out of his apartment and um, I started writing a backstory, and the backstory was that the guy had gone to a, a, a baile, a dance, and there had been a fight. And there was something about violence in the story and how he was sort of afraid of violence and, the, mm-hmm. you know, this fight on the dance floor. So I was writing a fight scene uh, on the dance floor, and because I was describing bodies moving through space... The, da- the fighting turned into dancing. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I found that I was writing a dance scene, and it was the, the dance scene uh, between Liz, um, one of the, the female characters, hmm. and the narrator. And I loved it. I really loved the, the, the writing and, and the scene and you know describing dancing, which, which I have a background in, in dancing. Um, and the story sort of developed from there. I had to sort of build uh, the beginning of the story under that premise that they were some, at least two characters were at a dance, you know, a dance club. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how it started was 
um, I was in graduate school and I had to write a story for workshop and I was working on this one story and then the dancing sort of splintered and branched off and became its own story which I think is super cool. I like to think about it from a writing point of view that you're like trying to describe a fight scene, but because like bodies and arms and legs are sort of like moving, mm. it naturally turns into a dance. Well, it did for me at least. And I, I love that. I love that it happened like that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, that scene is so great. That sort of opening scene when they're dancing at the club, you, you know, there's moments where the music is building and people are sort of going into almost kind of a frenzy when they're dancing. It's just, it's, it's so high energy. Yeah. I definitely could see the, the line between fighting and dancing being a little blurry there. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then um, I, I don't know if, um, you know, I mentioned that there's sort of a turn when they go to the, to the, um, to the almond orchard and that sort of emerged after um later having a conversation with with a friend of mine about uh sex and sexuality and the way it was sort of policed um mm-hmm. in the area that i grew up in but maybe maybe we can i don't know if you want to talk about that now or, or save it for like a later part of the of the conversation it's totally up to you <laughs> oh okay well let's let's hold on to it i think i think for right now we can talk about the beginning and okay. i'm sure the the rest of the content will sort of come up naturally I, I feel sure um so i'm thinking when i read this piece when you first submitted it to the common um it was one of the first pieces that came in when we put out our, our call for submission for work uh writing writing from the farm worker community and i i think what struck me most when i first read it was this the language and the energy of it um, you know, sort of, we were just talking about that dance scene that's really high energy and the narration itself is really lively. It feels really honest to these characters and the way they live and, the, and their time in life. It feels young. Um, did that come pretty naturally or was it something you worked at and refined? Like, did it take you a while to find that voice or was that voice just, just pretty natural to that scene? Um, I think it's a voice that I had been playing around with um, for a while, uh, but the voice belonged to an older narrator, a 24-year-old narrator who was living in Los Angeles, and there was something sort of uh, grungy about this character, um, and so that's kind of where I think the voice, it, I was playing around with it, and also I think during the time that I was writing it, I had like a child's voice that I was playing around with, and then like an older, like more kind of adolescent or young adult voice. And this is that that voice of that character. But, um, you know, the, the reality is that at the time I was in graduate school and I had to take a bunch of classes <clears throat> and they had this series of classes for us in the MFA program called Reading for Writers. Hmm. And it was cool. You know, I took the first one um, and then the second semester, it was actually a uh, one that was taught um, that focused on fiction and they were going to read like five or six like books, you know, all fiction. And it was going to be uh, solely, you know, focused on, on fiction. And I don't even know why, but I decided to drop in on a different reading for writers that was actually called reading for poets hmm. with uh, Alice Fulton, uh, who was, you know, who's one of the faculty members there at Cornell mm-hmm. And I showed up to the first day of class and I loved it. And I stayed in the class, even though it was a undergraduate upper division class, we were allowed to take upper division undergraduate courses. So um, I was there in the class with a few, there was one other graduate student, another uh, MFA poet, 
and then Alice, and then uh, a few undergrads, and we read contemporary poetry. She chose six collections. Uh, Juan Felipe Herrera was one of them. He was poet laureate of the United States at the time. Mm. And we just kind of met once a week and talked about poetry. And it was the first time since undergrad when I was reading, you know, you know, Percy Shelley and, you know, Shakespeare and yeah. you know, Lord Byron and, you know, all the stuff that I had to read for my classes. It was the first time I had read contemporary poetry in a long time. So I loved it and I got really into it and it sort of changed me the way I, the way I wrote, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it was during this time that, um, that I was reading poetry um, that I, that I also wrote this story the beginning and and i think it sort of influenced me i mean not consciously i wasn't sitting there like thinking that i needed to you know write poetry but it's just because i was reading poetry it mm-hmm. sort of kind of i think influenced the way i i built the sentences as lines and even the first paragraph has that you know um built especially for visiting artists who came from everywhere there's a line in Juan Felipe Herrera's collection where he says something along the lines of because we come from everywhere or something like mm. that. And at the end of the class that semester, Alice actually brought in a cake <laughs> and the, the cake said, uh, we come from everywhere or something along those lines. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are little things like that that I was kind of playing around with mm. and I, I had a lot of fun and I enjoyed sort of crafting uh, sentences that to me at least to me and my very rudimentary, like, I'm not a poet, but I want to, like, include a few lines here and there, you know, like, so, so soft. And, mm. you know, when <clears throat> when he says, I wanted to have a dance with her right then and there, and then later the characters say here, now, and, you know, there's just little, like, to me, what to me are, like, inside jokes that are kind mm. of built into the language. Oh, I love that. So and so, I think that's one of the reasons why the fighting turned into um, dancing because I had sort of softened, softened in my just in my whole person, my my life, my my personality, and I just really opened to to poetry in a way that to me was lit- it was life changing. That class totally changed me, and and I didn't expect to take a class that would sort of impact me so profoundly. I mean, I just wanted to kind of get by and get through my classes and, and focus on my writing. But to this day, I find that writing, uh, reading poetry um, sort of gets me going in the way that nothing else does. I mean, I love reading short fiction and, and novels, but when I read poetry, it's just, I think because I come to it as a beginner, you know, I don't presume to be a poet. Um, so I have to p- read very attentively. Uh, it sort of just gets me going and it just really stimulates me. And and uh, it's just the whole, it was just a whole new sort of uh, development in my in my reading and writing. So I think that's kind of where the, the, the sort of, if there's any lyricism, you know, to be said mm-hmm. in the piece. Um, and then also, um, even before that, um, well, I guess before that, I, I listened to a lot of hip hop. And uh, when I first started writing, I think hip hop was kind of like part of that too. But then it kind of changed. I think it got upgraded to like poetry, like contemporary mm. poetry that I was reading. So, um, so long story short, Alice mm. Fulton's class just completely 
like rocked me and leveled me and upgraded my my sensibilities i think it's you know i can't i can't say enough good things about that class and how beautiful it was and and how life-changing it was that's great that's really interesting to hear and i think it, it leads well into my next question. You know, you're talking about softening things and fighting turning to dancing and stuff. But um, I was thinking about um, the the two main characters, the narrator and Len Show, are football players, and, and it's a big part of their identity. Um, and we usually think of football as like a very masculine sport, but in this story, it also it is very masculine. But it also seems to make some space for for maybe a more queer experience, or the players, you know, just knowing each other really intimately, and and, and lines getting blurred. And with Lencho, it seems to be that football is like a way to be violent with other men, but also a way to be close to them and, and to, to build this friendship. Would you just talk a little bit about that? You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is just all the guys that I grew up with <clears throat> throughout like middle school and high school playing football. I myself, you know, played football and, uh, you know, went to dances and, you know, went to, you know, parties where it was like, guys drinking and smoking and and then later in college um in college i was in a latino fraternity which i joined my freshman year sort of spontaneously at the same time i was part of a dance group a folklorico dance group which is mexican folk dance Mm -hmm. so i had these two experiences of like what might be considered like a masculine, you know, the masculine space and then a more like feminine space. So I felt like in me, I had, I I was very lucky in college to have these both sort of expressions of my, of myself. And I think when they come to the, to the fraternity, more than anything, I observed a hardness that would sometimes uh, soften into intimacy or vulnerability and I think a lot of those guys, including myself, were walking around with all of these feelings that rarely sort of kind of made it out into the into open space. And and I know that was true of like the the guys I grew up with in, in high school. I remember once um, I was at a party and we were drinking and, you know, smoking. And there was this guy and he was like really big and everyone, you know, he kind of got made fun of a lot. And uh, at, w- at one point, he, he was this huge, like, just huge guy, you know, he was just 100%, like, just muscle, and just, he was just big boned, as they say, you know. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he just broke down crying, and he was like, you guys don't understand, like, people have been making fun of me my whole life. And mm-hmm. it was just to see that happening was, I think, sort of um, representative of what everyone was sort of kind of going through. So I think despite the masculinity and the hardness I sort of sensed that there was something sort of softer or, or more intimate um, about um, these people that I that I grew up with. And so I wondered, like, what would it be like if we were allowed to sort of express that and, and, and actually like love each other in, in a way um, that, you know, that might that might that might um, turn romantic or or some kind of maybe love that, you know, I can't even put words to, but I guess maybe a type of love for in between like guys, you know, yeah, totally. guys who are used to like hitting each other. And, you know, at practice, you, you, you inflict violence upon each other. But then at the same time, like, I think a lot of us just wanted to hold each other sometimes, you know, and, mm-hmm. 
And I think we weren't allowed to do that. Or, or if we did, it was like in joking, you know, like we would, we would act out like, you know, intimacy, but it was, it was more of a joke. And I wondered if everyone was just kind of walking around with like real love for each other. And so I, I kind of wondered about that. And so I think it, it's a type of, to me, like love story um, that often isn't, um, it's kind of policed, you know, and I think in the, in the, in the very conservative, you know, current County that I grew up in something like that, you know, like Lencho and the narrator, even exploring the possibility of a type of romantic love, a, a queer love, like that's just so transgressive and so like difficult. Um, but, but I think, um, but I think that intimacy is real and it's there. And, and I think it cannot be, it cannot be silenced. It cannot be stopped. So, and, and I, and I have felt that I think, you know, growing up and, and, and even in college, just feeling that, that vulnerability, that intimacy between, between guys that, you know, that it, it was okay to be like that with a woman, you know, to be like that with a girlfriend, you know, mm-hmm. like you could be vulnerable and, but among guys, you, you kind of had to be kind of hard and, 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 I, and I knew these guys who were like supposedly hard and then I would see them sort of break down at times and cry. And, and I was like, you know, I was just, I, I just really f- kind of feel that, that dilemma of like having all these feelings and not being able to express them and, and how sad it is that um, the possibility of, of romantic love can be kind of squashed mm-hmm. um, by the circumstances. So um, all of that to say that, you know, the narrator and Lencho sort of explore the possibility of, of romantic love. And I think that's, that's very normal to me, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think I just feel like that, that is very normal for these guys to have these kinds of experiences. Yeah. It's interesting. They, they are so intimate as friends and then they, they know their bodies so well because they play football together that it does feel, it does feel natural. And, you know, obviously there's, you know, you still feel that the, maybe the societal pressure, the what would people think, but but it feels, I think, to them kind of natural, yeah. Um, I, you know, so I, I said before that you had submitted this work as, as part of our farm worker portfolio. Um, and I, you know, there's there's a few, like, hints about farm working in this story that, that Lencho, maybe that's his future, is working on farms because he's probably not going to college. <clears throat> um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little more about your background with farm work, either, either personally or in your family. Yeah, of course. Now it all begins with my grandpa, Serafin, um, who immigrated from Mexico to the Delano area of, of California, which is, you know, north of Bakersfield. And he did this because uh, Delano, California and my parents' hometown in Michoacan, um, I remember learning in Chicano studies classes that there are like these binational communities where um, people go to a certain place in the U.S. and then a lot of other people go there. And then so like, for example, when I would go to Mexico during like Christmas growing up, I would meet a lot of people from Delano. And so there's this story about how there's a lot of people from my parents' hometown in Delano. And that's how my grandpa um, ended up in Delano, though. There's a beautiful story about him going to Sinaloa, which is a Western uh, state in Mexico, Mm -hmm. and trying to get recruited by these U.S. contractors 
And uh, while he waited to try to get a U.S. contract, he sold aguas frescas, you know, like uh, like oh, yeah. wa- waters, you know, like Jamaica, horchata. And, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of funny because my grandpa was also, you know, speaking of hardness, he was sort of a rigid man and, you know, very kind of stoic. So mm-hmm. that's how it started. He came here and he worked in the fields until he was physically no longer able to. And, um, you know, by extension, his children, my uncles um, also worked in the fields. My own parents worked in the fields. Um, My dad, since he was like a basically a child, both in Mexico and in the U.S., uh, he worked in the fields uh, grafting roses. And I think that was like the main one of the main stories that he tells is like grafting roses because it was he said he loved it. He said he would do it out of joy and pleasure that he enjoyed the work when he was a young man. Oh, that's um, cool. And that's then, nice. yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it was, you know, it's, it was part of the family. Just, it was just kind of reality growing up that our, our parents and, and my uncles and a lot of people in town that they worked in the fields. That was kind of, kind of what people did. And then uh, I love this. Um, there's this like myth, this family myth about how uh, my parents uh, were approached in the fields by uh, an organization that that provided like um, ESL classes and uh, GED classes to farm mm-hmm. workers. And uh, my parents at the time, you know, they tell stories of having, you know, they had us four, I have four brothers total, nothing but brothers. Oh, that's something mm-hmm. we might have maybe should have talked about when we were talking about masculinity, the fact that I... <laughs> I have four brothers and no mm-hmm. sisters. Um, but anyways, they tell stories of like looking in the couches for coins in order to buy food because, you know, they, they weren't making enough money in the fields. And and so they decided to take a risk. And, um, you know, they had to take time off to go to these classes. But eventually they got their GEDs. And, and then they got my mom got a job in the clinic as a medical records clerk. Mm-hmm. And my dad at the same company um, where he was grafting roses, he got a job as a maintenance mechanic. So he was like fixing machines and kind of working on the grounds. And 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 then uh, so basically they, you know, they 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 stopped working in the fields and, and they kept those jobs for as long as they could. My mom to this day still works in that same job, same position. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, she got that one job and she was like, she just kind of stayed there. Um, my dad later worked in the oil fields, which is another industry that's um, that's in the area. Um, as for, so that, you know, that's, I, I love that story because I don't know why, they, they never really harped on it too much. But to me, it always like encouraged me to like go to school and like focus mm-hmm. on school. And it was like my parents, you know, they got their GEDs. And I remember I was in fourth grade and um, in this on the standardized testing form, it asked your parents like highest level of education. And I was mm-hmm. so proud that my parents had gotten their GEDs. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking the teacher like, oh, like what about a GED? Like, is that college or some college? Right. And, and she was like, oh no, you could put high school. And then so that to me, made me want to go to college because I was like, well, the next step after a GED is college because I think the next one was like some college. Mm -hmm. So it always like I I, I wanted to go to college because I had this myth was like in my body and I could I don't know why it like motivated me so much. So um, that's what happened with Mm -hmm. my parents. Um, As for me, 
Um, I worked on my uncle's ranch. He had a ranch and I, and I worked there, uh, one summer, you know, feeding animals and, and, you know, cutting down corn stalks, but mm-hmm. it was with family, you know, so it wasn't, right. you know, I didn't have a foreman or anything right. like that. <laughs> so, um, but then as, as there's a story in the, you know, about, um, going into the fields and bariando, you get these long bamboo sticks and you have to knock down the almond pots. Uh, me and one of my cousins, one winter break, we did that work, but, um, we got fired after one day. We were kind of, we were like, not good at it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we were not good at it. We were slow, you know, and yeah. it was our first time out there. And It is really skilled labor. I think yeah, there's yeah. A, a feeling that it isn't. And I, I know now that that is so incorrect. <laughs> oh man. Some of these guys, you know, they're, they just go through these fields and they're just going really fast. And, and then, um, after um so that that didn't last long but um (laughs) i worked at kmart it was the (laughs) biggest store in town and um my my graduation week of high school i quit because i wanted to go to a party so i called in and i was like i quit you know i'm not coming in anymore and at the time i knew that i was going to go to ucla so i was like i don't care you know i was like 17 18 right so but then i was like damn i need money so uh, I uh, actually ended up working on a farm that was owned by one of my football teammates' dad, actually. Mm-hmm. So I was on a crew uh, hoeing weeds in almond orchards, and the, the almond trees were, like, young. So the roots mm. were, like, super, super thick, and my shoulder just, like, got numb. My whole arm, the mm-hmm. whole right side of my of my my body just was, like, numb, and the guys had to keep helping me. And I remember at one point a plane flew overhead and the guys were like, oh, it's our boss. You know, he's keeping tabs on us. So I think one of the reasons why these guys were working so hard is out of fear of like losing their jobs. You know, like if they didn't work hard enough that they were going to be dismissed just like I was, you know, for being too slow. Like if you don't cut it out there, they get rid of you and then somebody else is going to replace you quick. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I did that for that summer and part of it was symbolic, you know, I wanted to know what it was like to like sure. be, a, you know, work in the fields. Cause I had grown up there. My parents had done it, but then they always kind of shielded us from it, you know, like they didn't want us to work in the fields. They wanted us to focus on school, you know? And I remember even going out there, um, and working in the fields and, and the older guys were like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm working. And they're like, how old are you? And, you know, I'm 17. Like, why aren't you in school? And then I would explain to them and they would tell me, like, you need to go to school because this work ain't worth shit. You know, they would tell me things like that, like really mm-hmm. sad stories about mm-hmm. like how they, they had no choice but to do this work. And they were trying to encourage me to go to school because it seemed like I had an option. I had a choice right. that, I, that I had an opportunity to go to school that they that they didn't, you know, so. You know, there's all these, all these, you know, stories about, you know, farm work and, and working out in the fields. But, um, but it, it sort of, sort of kind of became a thing of the past once I went to college and lived in LA. Um, but even then I took it with me because people would ask me where I'm from and I would tell them and they'd be like, oh, Cowtown, you know, the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I was like, okay, like that's rude, you know, like, yeah. So I would always be judged because I came from like a small rural town. And even though I was over here at UCLA, people would, they're kind of mean about it sometimes, which kind of annoyed me, but mm. it is where I'm from. And now I'm, I'm very proud of being where I'm from. And, 
you know, Manuel Munoz, the short story writer and, and novelist uh, who teaches here at the University of Arizona. He just got a MacArthur Genius Grant, yeah. you know, and he writes a lot about farm workers. And he's I, I say he's a champion. Mm-hmm. He's a champion of the Central Valley. And so it's very inspiring, you know, to see somebody like him writing about these communities and, and me also kind of being from a community similar to the one that he grew up in. Uh, it makes me feel really encouraged. So. Um, I love it. I love I love the the people that, you know, I, I got to know growing up. And and I think at one point, because of what I mentioned about people judging me, I, I used to be a little ashamed of it, you know. Mm. But I think now um, I, I like to just accept it and embrace that, you know, yeah, these this is kind of how I grew up. And and I'm just I'm more interested in like bearing witness to the reality than I am to sort of distorting the truth of where I come from. So yeah. um, that's the, those are some of the stories mm-hmm. of, um, you know, farm work in my life. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Um, I, you know, a thing that I have learned from working on this farm worker portfolio with um, Miguel M. Morales, who is our, um, our co-editor for the portfolio, um, is that how hard it is to find other farm workers who are writing and how hard it is to kind of find community with people with that background. I think because people do kind of keep it quiet and it's just, I sort of love that, that you studied at Cornell where um, Helena Maria Viramontes teaches and and she's sort of a a legend of of Mm. writing about her farm working background and then also working with with Manuel Munoz as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that that you've you found your little farm worker community in the writing world oh yeah definitely i mean i wrote my undergraduate thesis on elena maria viramontes is under the feet of jesus and i did i did a whole thing about farm worker fiction and and you know uh reading these farm worker stories you know um so like tomas rivera um and the earth did not devour him and like the 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 playwright luis valdez and even juan felipe herrera tim z hernandez um, but especially Elena, you know, when I read when I read her work and it made me want to write, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I have stories, too. You know, yeah. like I, I also have stories and I come from this area. And so mm-hmm. it really sort of motiv- motivated me to to want to write as a as an undergrad. But yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I just yeah, I like I mean, my, my farming background is just that I grew up on my parents farm, um, mm. which is certainly very different. But I, I just. I think for a while I thought that no one, that those stories weren't worth telling, like that they weren't cool and modern. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and over time, I've really come to found that people are, people are very curious about it and that I'm not ashamed of it or anything. And I just, yeah, I think mm-hmm. my writing does end up heading in that direction a lot. And, and I, I like it. Yeah. 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 At the, at the same time, um, I, I love the, you know, the descriptions of, of farm work and, but I think I've always had some kind of like contrarian or kind of rebel, you know, <laughs> sensibility where I'm like, yeah, but yes, you know, it's true. Like it's very noble and noble work and it's very hard work and there's a lot of injustice. But at the same time, these people, you know, people I grew up with, people I knew, like they were human and some of them were out in the field smoking pot or popping <laughs> pills, you know, and yep. it was like there is like. I don't want to like romanticize, you know, the farm worker, um, because I, I think there's more, there's more to the experience, especially among my generation, you know, of, mm-hmm. of people that who, who, especially, you know, younger people who, who, um, who might be, you know, farm workers, but at the same time, they want to go party, you know, they want to yeah. go dance, they want to, <laughs> you know, have fun, have romantic love. So there's, 
there's, I feel like, uh, you know, many layers to, to the experience of, of being a farm worker that, that, I, that I'm interested in. Yeah, that's great. So, um, always the last thing we ask a podcast guest is sort of what they're working on now. Um, and I'm thinking that the last time we spoke on the phone, you were at McDowell, um, doing a residency and you were doing the final revisions on this piece and, and maybe you were like finishing a story collection. Is that true? Um, I think I was finishing a draft of a story collection. I did finish a draft and, um, I, I sort of had that dilemma. I don't know if we, we talked about this when I was at McDowell, but McDowell, I had that dilemma is like, am I done with short stories? Mm. Do I need to start writing a novel? Like, so I felt very split. And um, I think a part of me wanted to be done with short stories, but I don't think I am. (laughs) I I think I, you know, when I first started writing (laughs) back in 2012, you know, (laughs) over 10 years ago, I was like, oh, I'll just write a, you know, loosely autobiographical short story collection, like kind of like Victor Labau did with Slapboxing with Jesus. Okay, no big deal. I'll bang that out and then I'll write a novel. And I thought it was going to be like easy, you know, <laughs> but uh, I have found that, you know, apprenticing in the short story has been grueling and, and very demanding. And, mm. and I sort of, when I was at McDowell, I kind of wanted to like escape or run away from it. Mm. Since coming back, I feel like I want to double down and uh, finish a short story collection that I think can be very robust. I want to, you know, I want it to be, um, you know, I want it to be as good as I think I can make it. So um, I am for now uh, not getting ahead of myself by saying (laughs) that I'm writing a novel, though I do have a few, you know, stuff that are kind of on the back burners. But I think right now, for the next uh, foreseeable future, I am going to focus on uh, trying to finish my short story collection. Uh, several of the stories have been, you know, published already, and, and I have mm-hmm. several more that I want to sort of include. and And I just want it to be like a full length, you know, collection that that can sort of sit on the shelves, um, you know, with with other story collections that I that I admire. So long story yeah. short, I'm still working on short stories, um, though I did almost uh, refuse the call, you know, to, <laughs> to continue, but um, I, I can't help it. I, I, I want to finish my work. And, mm-hmm. and uh, for whatever reason, the short story has sort of kind of, uh, you know, become my home in a way. So I want to, I want to keep going, even though, you know, people say like, I, you know, people say like, oh, short stories don't sell. And, you know, I'm not, editors don't really want short stories. And I'm like, well, I, I beg to differ. I have found people who, who actually disagree with those kinds of statements. So I'm going to continue uh, working on short stories. Yeah. I think there's always going to be space for, for good short stories. And, and you've written so many of them already <laughs> might as well stick it out. Yeah. Yeah. And a I few mean, things on the back burner. I mean, that's the best way to to do it you know yeah yeah because you know everyone's like oh that's cool short stories but what's your novel about you know and it's mm-hmm. like uh you know <laughs> like i don't know even i don't know I, I think i i feel more comfortable as a reader um even as a reader reading short stories and um poetry because maybe because they're they're more to me more manageable and in a novel it's just so long you know and it's yeah maybe i need to just sit down and spend six hours reading a whole novel in one sitting or something, maybe maybe that'll make it, um, you know, better. But I like that with the short story, you can sit down and in one sitting, you can sort of experience the whole story. And then afterward, you're like, whoa, 
Yeah, sort of reeling from it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I yeah, need to take a break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Leo Rios, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. I'm so glad we, we got to talk today. Thank you, Emily. This was great. I'm super grateful for the magazine, for the portfolio to Miguel. You know, this has been my most exciting like publication and I love the cover, you know, the pink cover. If you guys, (laughs) whoever's listening, if you don't have, you know, the issue, it is a beautiful pink cover with a tool. It's a, what is it? A turnip? It's a turnip. turnip. It's a turnip. And, uh, I just love, I, I have loved I re- have really loved um, not only, you know, working on the story, but also like seeing it through the publication and then enjoying, you know, the the fact that it's published now. So thank you, uh, mm-hmm. Emily, and thank you, everyone at The Common and, mm-hmm. and all the readers and everyone listening right now. Oh, that, that's really nice to hear. You know, I've, I've been at The Common for seven, almost eight years and published a lot of issues. And this one was very, very special, the, the community between the contributors and the the excitement around the, the magazine coming out and these stories being told has just been absolutely magical to be a part of. Like, I just feel so, so lucky to, to, yeah, to be part of it, to be making it happen. <laughs> yes. 100%. Listeners, you can read Leo's story Lencho and subscribe to the latest issue at the